It's an unusually warm, quiet night in late September. It's been just a few weeks since 9-11, but it's not the 9-11 you're probably thinking of. The original 9-11. The day of Chile's brutal military coup. The coup that cost Salvador Allende his life. In Chile, it's precious democracy. The coup of 1973. As with the other 9-11, our story starts in New York. And yes, a huge explosion looms large on the horizon. Someone has just phoned the New York Times about a bomb, and it's ticking in the very heart of Manhattan. The target is ITT, a mighty tech giant with links to the CIA and the military. A company almost universally disliked. A company whose Chilean holdings were nationalized by Allende. They hated him for it. And now that he's dead, someone must be taking revenge. But who? Minutes go by, then hours. Perhaps it was just a prank call. Perhaps IDT would not have to pay for its sins in Chile after all. Perhaps they'll get away with it. But then, at 5.40 in the morning, things do take a turn for the worse. Boom. The explosion that shakes Madison Avenue marks a tragic end to Allende's ambitious agenda. His both efforts to reclaim technology have failed. And Chile paid dearly for his democratic vision, a vision that we're still missing today, and badly so. Welcome to the Santiago Boys, a podcast where technology is politics and politics is technology. I'm Evgeny Morozov, and for the past two years, I've been chasing a wild Latin American dream a tech utopia that helps us deal with our own dystopian present. This is not your typical technology podcast. Rather, it's a tribute to Allende's utopian engineers, I call them the Santiago Boys, who dared to imagine a very different digital future. A future where technology helps democracy, not ruins it. Where big data means solidarity, not surveillance. Forget instruments of repression. The Santiago boys saw computers as liberty machines. They saw that engineers should transform the world instead of merely trying to control it. And remarkably, they almost did. Until, of course, Allende's enemies put a bloody end to the tech utopia. It's a wild story from more than 50 years ago, and I do know it might get dizzy at times. But I promise you, in the end, it will all make sense. I do know that nine episodes is a long ride, so let me give you a quick taste of Allende's enemies, but also some of his secret tech weapons. And as far as his enemies are concerned, we don't even have to leave New York. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. But before we resume our story, you might enjoy knowing that I produced most of this podcast in a very different setting. I've been working like mad in a small town in the south of Italy, in Calabria to be exact, but I was surrounded by mountains and forests and some animals. I initially thought it would be a quick job, I'd be here for a few months at most. 
but it actually turned into a truly quixotic mission, a mission that took me two years. And it involved more than 200 interviews and quite a few archival visits, and definitely a lot of false starts and leads. Just to give you an idea, I've written at least 11 different versions of the script for this podcast. And what started as popular history of a mysterious cybernetic room in Santiago soon morphed into something so much larger, a tale involving geopolitics, spies, big tech, and of course, Salvador Allende. At the beginning, I thought that Allende would be just a minor historical character in this tale. But as I dug deeper, I've understood that the Chilean president is absolutely crucial to understanding everything that you're about to hear. So we jump straight to an important point in Allende's presidency. He realizes he's running out of time. His revolution has stalled. His enemies are plotting against him. What is he supposed to do? It's late 1972, almost 11 months before that explosion. We are at the luxurious Waldorf Astoria Hotel, just blocks from the IGT building. Normally, this place is the playground of the rich and the powerful. But tonight, it's a no-man's land between socialism and capitalism, a place where Allende gets his last chance to man fences with America. Had this meeting gone differently, the ITT explosion may have never happened. The meeting took place in a small sitting room on the 26th floor of the hotel at 10.30 p.m. President Allende, speaking through an interpreter, appeared relaxed. These are the words of George H.W. Bush, and are spoken by an actor. At the time, Bush is the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. In front of him is an avuncular man in his mid-60s. He's wearing horn-rimmed glasses that make him look like a college professor. The president wore a quasi-Mao jacket. As soon as we sat down, somebody passed out scotch. The president took a scotch on the rocks with a little bit of water. The Maoist jacket, the scotch, the luxurious hotel, I am this like this. He's a walking paradox, a bundle of contradictions. Contradictions that could never be reconciled. Sure, he loves the contrast, the evil capitalists and the poor workers, but let's face it, he also loves his oysters and his whiskey and his fancy shirts. And don't forget those famous Chilean delicacies, red wine and empanadas. Both have, in fact, become the very symbols of his revolution. A revolution that has captivated the world, but has also in the end many enemies. And not just in Chile. Allende is in New York to address the United Nations, but trust me, it won't be one of those boring speeches. No, he wants to attack big American companies. He thinks they're bad for Chile. And Washington, as you probably guessed, is not at all thrilled about this speech. So Ambassador Bush is here to talk some good sense into Allende. He must still convince him to change something in tomorrow's speech. There is no need for attacks. America means well. I said there may have been excesses from time to time, but basically the American people believe deeply in free enterprise and in capitalism and in investment. Not in a selfish sense, but because we felt that it was the best way to provide a better standard of living for all. This encounter is not a mere shouting match. Driving it is a geopolitical battle for the very meaning of technological autonomy. Should countries like Chile get their technologies from the US? 
or should they avoid any such dependencies and build their own? This, at any rate, is what Allende wants, and his utopian engineers can't wait to do this. When we look at the bills that Chile has to pay, they might have a point. All those fees for copyright, licenses, trademarks cost a fortune. So while Bush is here to impede Chile's past technological autonomy, Allende is doing his best to advance it. Now, according to Bush, the meeting ends on a high note. Allende gave me several very firm handshakes, looked me directly in the eye, seemed to go out of his way to be warm and friendly. Allende's colleagues remember it differently. When Allende mentions that the CIA may have been trying to topple him, Bush defends the agency. Deeply offended, Allende stands up, thanks Bush for his time, and points to the door. The meeting is over. He won't be changing a single comma in tomorrow's speech. Has he just signed his own death warrant? The following morning, Allende ascends the stage at the United Nations. Agradezco el alto honor que se me hace al invitarme a ocupar esta tribuna. He's feeling the pain of his new shoes, but this is vintage Allende, a provincial man trying to make an impression on the sophisticated crowd in Manhattan. There's been a bit of a change in appearance for our Marxist friend here. He's ditched the Maoist jacket for a banker-like outfit. But when he starts talking, you know that this guy is anything but a banker. Estamos frente a un verdadero conflicto frontal sobre las grandes corporaciones transnacionales y los estados. Allende argues that corporations should not interfere with sovereign nations, and that the smaller countries need to come together and make a whole new global economy, an economy to defend against the big tech of the day, the likes of ITT. La ITT, gigantesca corporación, cuyo capital es superior al presupuesto nacional de varios países latinoamericanos juntos. Yes, that's ITT that Allende is attacking here. He's accusing it of nothing less than trying to foment a civil war in Chile. These are not light charges. As he finishes his speech, the room erupts in thunderous applause. Cautiously, Allende heads towards the throne-like chair near where he just spoke. He acknowledges his admirers with a salute, taking in the moment. However, as he settles into the seat, his expression changes dramatically from confidence to gloom and near tragedy. He must know that Chile's peaceful road to socialism has been anything but, and the path ahead will be filled with explosives, nails, mines, and missiles. A tragic hand looms on the horizon. I do know that I also promised to show you some of Allende's secret tech weapons. So, here we are. A few weeks go by, and Allende is back in Santiago. Only this time, he's sitting in a room that looks like something straight out of a sci-fi movie. It's a futuristic space, complete with slick data screens and mysterious interfaces. This place is the beating heart and brain of Project Cybersyn, Allende's groundbreaking attempt at managing the Chilean economy. It's like a shrine to the gods of big data. I remember being there once, and it looked like what you see in the, in the, in the films. It was attractive. It was something that created you an impression that you're living in a different world. Certainly, it was an unusual setting. 
you would not expect it in a normal office. The white chairs, these different screens. In the middle of the room, there are seven white chairs that form a circle. Allende sits in one of them, and as he spins around, he takes in all the unique decor. There are these cool orange cushions on the chairs. They might seem like a subtle detail, but they add so much personality to the space. And then, with a mere push of a button on the chair's armrest, Allende opens up a portal to a vast world of data that is both enigmatic and exciting. This data can help him build a new kind of socialism in Chile, the cybernetic one. So we had this room, no paper, all automatic, all screens, all under the control of the people sitting in the chairs, capable of doing national simulations. Well, we were And that voice you are hearing now is none other than Stafford Beer, the man behind the whole operation, the cyber scenery in chief. He's quite the character, to say the least. And, as we dig deeper into his story, we'll get a glimpse into the mind of this complex and fascinating man. Before we do that, though, we must get to know the Santiago boys, the utopian engineers that brought him to Chile. Without them, the worlds of Beer and Allende would have never collided. But how did these middle-class engineers even end up in politics? And not just any politics, but Allende's leftist politics. And how did they come to worship an upper-class British management consultant? That doesn't make much sense, does it? Yes, we do have quite a few riddles here. And to solve them, we do need to tell the story chronologically, from the mid-1960s onwards. Yes, I know, it might occasionally seem over the top and confusing, but let's face it, real history is like this. And as they say, those who don't learn from it are doomed to repeat it. And given how tragic all of this is, that's not at all what we want to do. It all begins in Santiago on an otherwise ordinary August day in 1967. This is when progressive students take over the Catholic University, the bastion of the country's elite. Our own Santiago boys, most of them studying engineering, are among them. Little do they know this is so much more than a mere student gathering. It will transform Chile for good. The Tomar, the occupation of the Catholic University, was the starting point of our entering politics at the national level. This is Gabriel Rodriguez, back then just a student of engineering, active in university politics. He'll be our guides through the Santiago Boys universe. When we started the student movement, we were quite dissatisfied with what was happening in the country in terms of the social situation, the economic situation, injustice. The occupation shakes the conservative university to its core, opening up a much-needed conversation. We call the university was a kind of uh, of closed tower, and we would like to open it to the country, to incorporate the contradictions of the country. It's a debate for the ages. What is the purpose of a university? Is it simply to produce graduates who are experts in their fields? Or is it also meant to spark societal change? And once they're out there in the world, should these graduates be prioritizing their careers or their ethics? With role models like Salvador Allende, Fidel Castro, and Che Guevara, the Santiago boys know where they stand on this one. In my country, the medicals know that the health is bought and that there are many people who can't buy the health. Allende himself starts as a doctor. But soon he understands that health problems have social and political origins. 
So he abandons medicine and becomes a politician. Some, however, go even farther. They want the revolution now. Nosotros queremos construir el socialismo. Nos hemos declarado partidarios de los que luchan por la paz. This is the voice of Che Guevara, another popular student idol at the time. He too starts as a doctor. But when he goes to Guatemala in the early 1950s, he sees its government overthrown. The CIA and the United Fruit Company are partly to blame. This is what turns one humble doctor into the world's most famous guerrilla fighter. And then, of course, there is Fidel Castro. As a young lawyer, yeah, that's how he starts out. Castro fights an American corporation that is pillaging his native Cuba. He wins the case, but the country's then dictator reverses the decision. The courtroom is no longer the right stage for Fidel Castro's battles. But what about the engineers? Will they follow the example of radical doctors and lawyers? Of Allende, Che Guevara and Fidel Castro? The Santiago boys very much hope so, and they will do their bit. Here's Gabriel Rodriguez again. We knew about technology. We knew what was possible to be done in Chile and what not. Rejecting the militant path of Castro and Che Guevara, they endorse Allende's peaceful and democratic vision. Still, they're realists, not some naive dreamers. They know that technology alone cannot solve Chile's systemic problems. It is political action that truly moves the needle. We wonder about what kind of political measures could, would help to raise productivity. And you know what this radical tech enthusiast could really use? Well, a government that's on their side and that will give them the chance to actually explore their creative ideas. And this is exactly what they're going to get, and soon. It all starts when Gabriel and other radical professionals rally behind a new political party. MAPU, the name of our party, is an acronym for Movimiento de Acción Popular Unitaria. In English, MAPU means Popular Unitary Action Movement. Quite a mouthful. It was a mix of engineers and other professionals who were pushing for a more rational, efficient and more productive economy at the same time, more just. The MAPU party emerges at the right time. Chile's presidential elections are coming up, so MAPU and five other leftist parties launch the so-called Unidad Popular, or Popular Unity Coalition. The Santiago Boys represent its young, radical, and technologically savvy faction. They've come quite a long way from the student protests. And this election is where the Santiago boys cross paths with Allende, the joint candidate of the coalition. To have him as a candidate is something of a risky bet, though. Allende already lost three previous elections, and Washington did its best to prevent his rise. Thus, in the early election, in 1964, the manipulations were so blatant that they even pushed some on the Chilean left towards the Cuban model, a model of armed struggle, not of contesting elections. That's actually the opposite of what America wanted. Not the first time something like this happens to the US foreign policy, as you surely know. And on top of that, now everyone in Chile is complaining about the CIA nonstop. Peter Kornblow, who knows all about America's Chile policy, explains. CIA decided to literally fund literally 50% of Frey's 1964 
election covertly. Frey, by the way, is their favorite candidate. During the height of the Cold War, every election is a battleground. The CIA, led by Director John McCone, believed that Allende's victory would be a grave threat to the United States. As a result, the agency did everything it could to block him. They organized an incredible black propaganda, hostile propaganda campaign against Allende in 1964, distributing tens of thousands of leaflets, you know, basically saying, if Allende gets elected, the Chilean state is going to take your kids and eat them, uh, you know, or send them away to be indoctrinated or, you know, suck their blood. John McCone, the CIA director, is a name to remember. We'll meet him quite a few times in this podcast. His hatred of Allende is visceral. He even got Fidel Castro's sister to record a message for Chilean women. And somehow, CIA's interventions worked. In 1964, Allende lost. It's a turning point for Chilean politics. The 1964 election brings with it a crushing defeat for Allende and the left. The CIA's warning is clear. A leftist like Allende would never be allowed to win Chile's elections. It leads many on the left to question the effectiveness of elections in achieving their goals. The most radical among them begin to search for other paths to their ideals. This is how a new political party called Mir comes into being. Unlike their traditional counterparts, they want nothing to do with electoral politics. Instead, they take a page out of the revolutionary handbook, drawing inspiration from Castro and Che Guevara. Their plan is to work directly with the masses and, if needed, use arms, not ballots, to push ahead. The U.S. State Department takes notice in the report. A number of miristas have moved into the slums and are engaged, reportedly with a high degree of success, in literacy campaigns, rehabilitation of youths for the service of the working class, and establishment of schools and clinics. Let's make sure you get this right. So Mir was founded a few years before Mapu, the party of the Santiago Boys. And miristas, its members, are much more radical. They don't believe in hierarchies and national elections, and they hate technocracy. What they want is to put workers and peasants in charge. They want to redistribute power. It's an age-old ideological conflict. Mapu is all about radicalizing the technocrats, while those in Mir preach the gospel of people's power. And the novelty of that later approach doesn't escape the analysts in the State Department. A significant tenet of the Mir philosophy is to educate the people to a level of greater awareness of the need for revolution, rather than to expect them to follow blindly the Mir vanguard. Thus, activity in slums is partially concentrated on education and improving living conditions. The debate between these two competing visions of people's power versus the technocrat's power would profoundly affect Chilean politics in the years to come. Allende himself would prove the tragic figure who lived this conflict, and he died without ever seeing it resolved. As John McCone's CIA intervention radicalizes the Chilean left, Allende increasingly looks too soft and too peace-loving to lead it. Some even joke that his guerrilla suit would come straight from Christian Dior. And given how Allende dresses, that might even be an understatement. Even Allende's daughter Beatrice isn't so sure about her father's peaceful methods. And she's hardly alone in her skepticism, as several members of Allende's own socialist party consider his vision a relic of the past. 
initially Beatrice was rather ambivalent about um, her father's presidential campaign. This is Tanya Harmer, a historian from the London School of Economics. By day, Beatrice works as a doctor, but by night, she leads a double life, providing support to guerrilla groups in the region. And despite the chaos of the Chilean election, Beatrice remains steadfast in her mission. Elections won't change Chile, even if her father is one of the frontrunners. She really can't envisage a, a way by which her father and the Unidad Popular um, are successful electorally. With the Chilean presidential campaign in full swing, Beatrice is still quite reluctant to join the fray. But when her father suffers a heart attack and a bombing rocks popular unity's offices, everything changes. To make matters worse, mysterious men start appearing at Allende's public events, and a minibus carrying him almost crashes due to brake failure. This election is starting to look just like the repetition of one in 1964. The CIA must still hate his guts. They won't stop at anything to block his project. Concerned for her father's safety, Beatrice takes swift action. With her military and intelligence training, she is able to assemble um, a group, a very small group, but very trustworthy group of individuals that can start building a personal bodyguard for her father. And these aren't just any bodyguards. They're from Mir. Their training in Cuba is finally being put to good use. Mir's leaders, including Allende's nephew, fancy themselves as modern-day Robin Hoods, robbing banks to support the landless. But it's not the most exciting thing that they do. During the campaign, Mir is also acting as Allende's personal intelligence agency, infiltrating right-wing forces to gather intel or using radio to mobilize support. They may hate technocracy, but technology is what allows Mir to outwit their opponents. The U.S. government is relentless in its efforts to discredit Allende. They use every tool at their disposal. It's only later that the U.S. Senate discovers the extent of their actions. It's an impressive list. A newsletter mailed to approximately 2,000 journalists, academicians, politicians, and other opinion makers. A booklet showing what life would be like if Allende won the presidential election. Translation and distribution of chronicles of opposition to the Soviet regime poster distribution, and sign-painting teams. The sign-painting teams had instructions to paint the slogan Sous Paredon, Your Wall, on 2,000 walls, evoking an image of communist firing squads. If only Allende had the same resources as his enemies. His own campaigns have always been scrappy, underfunded affairs. Checks would bounce for months, and financial struggles were a constant challenge. Despite these obstacles, Allende manages to rally a diverse range of supporters. This includes everyone from Santiago's sex workers, who donated a day's wages to his earlier campaign, to the local gypsy leader, whose fortune tellers prophesied that the future would be bright under Allende. With or without fortune tellers, Allende's enemies would hate him all the same. And foreign companies especially so. They oppose Allende's plans to create the social property area of the economy. This might sound a bit boring, but it's anything but. This would mean nationalizing many of these companies. And what a list it is. Just to give you a glimpse. Coca-Cola, Bank of America, DuPont, Dow Chemical, General Electric, Ford Motor, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers. You get the picture. 
I am the ones to nationalize all of them. It's as if he needed all this extra corporate enemies. He seems to have learned nothing from the battle between Guatemala and the United Fruit Company, a battle that the progressive government of Guatemala lost. Hasn't he heard about the revolving door between corporate America and the CIA? Of all the foreign companies worried about Allende, one is particularly aggressive, the tech giant ITT. This is the same company, by the way, that had defeated the young Fidel Castro in Cuba. Imagine how different our world could have been if Castro's law firm had actually prevailed. And now they have a lot to lose in case of Allende's victory. The program is absolutely Marxist and state-oriented expropriating practically all foreign and national private investment. This is a transcript of a talax from an ITT executive in Santiago to his superiors in New York. Allende is a savvy politician who knows that many ordinary Chileans hate this company, the way today's Americans hate AT&T or Comcast. So he'd attack them no matter the risks. At yesterday's rally, Allende mentioned the nationalization of Chiltelco as part of his expropriation plan. He referred to Chiltelco as a company that only installed phones in the wealthier areas of the city and kept its financial records in gold. The company is ITT's local subsidiary, by the way. Allende apparently has big plans for this company. He'll take it away from its American masters. He also stated that, being a public utility, it should not have profits but lower rates to make the service available to the lower classes. He also mentioned that Chileans should not be afraid of nationalization, since government-owned corporations prove to be more efficient than private ones. It's no wonder that they're so concerned. Allende's plan for technological autonomy is bold and ambitious. He wants Chile to have its own electronics industry, as well as recognize that telecom networks are not less important than natural resources. Few would dare make such claims today. By now, you're probably wondering, what exactly is ITT? ITT is a company with a very complicated reputation. According to Marcello Buccelli, a business historian, the company is ranked as the fifth most reviled in history, and that's quite a feat, I must say. In many countries, ITT monopolized uh, the telecommunications sector in times in which um, it was extremely expensive to set that uh, industry, and uh, had a reputation of uh, providing expensive and um, low-quality service. Why is Allende such a threat to the company? For them, he's the next Castro, the one-time lawyer turned revolutionary, who actually quickly nationalized this local property after the revolution. But Castro is hardly alone. A few years later, a governor in Brazil tried nationalizing it as well. But this time, ITT fought back, eventually using its connections in Washington to humiliate the Brazilian government. Now you probably understand why some joke that ITT's three letters stand for imperialism, treason, and terror, and not international telephone and telegraph. So Allende is a natural threat for ITT, but something else happens in between. Remember John McCone, the CIA director who blocked Allende's rise in 1964? By the time of the 1970 election, he's left the agency, but he'll never guess where he ended up next. Yes, on ITT's board. There is now an anti-Ende coalition between ITT and the CIA, a synergy based in hatred. 
So just a few months before the election, ITC CEO offers the CIA a staggering amount of money, seven figures to be exact, to prevent Allende from victory. John McCone really hates the guy. And in 1970, McCone is as committed to stopping Allende's rise as he was in 1964. But then something improbable happens. Allende does win. And the Chilean left is ecstatic. His revolution of red wine and empanadas can finally begin. And no one is happier than the Santiago boys, who can finally implement their bold and radical vision. And his enemies, in contrast, are desperate. A telex to New York from a local ITT executive gives us a hint of the mood. The two largest country clubs, Los Leones and Prince of Wales, were crowded Saturday and Sunday. These are upper-class clubs. Many of those there said that they'd come to forget, to get their minds off this tragedy. U.S. ambassador to Chile is also busy sending missives to Washington. Richard Nixon is pouring over them, carefully marking his favorite parts. We have been living with a corpse in our midst for some time, and its name is Chile. Nixon underlines this part of the ambassador's report. The decomposition is no less malodorous because of the civility which accompanies it. Chileans could, as usual, chatter endlessly on television and radio and in the early hours of today as if nothing had changed and the screen switched from variety shows to roundtables of politicians pontificating as foolishly as ever. Chileans like to die peacefully with their mouths open. Nixon also underlines this last sentence. An excellent perceptive job of analysis, he writes. Nixon isn't the only one feeling uneasy. Kissinger is very worried about Allende's election. This is Tanya Harmer, the LSE historian. Because it presents a new route to revolutionary change. Um, this wasn't an armed revolution, a violent overthrow of a government, but an electoral path to power of a socialist president and a left-wing coalition. And there are fears that this could spread to other countries, with socialists conquering France or Italy. Nixon won't let that happen. He's determined to stop Allende before he even gets a chance to implement his socialist policies. Nixon orders the CIA to take action, instructing them to make the Chilean economy scream. Yes, that famous phrase, make the Chilean economy scream. As the CIA sets its sights on Chile, they hatch a devilish plan. Their goal, to cut off the country's access to American technology, the lifeblood of its industry. They reach out to ITT and other companies, urging them to stop their technical support to the nation. The idea is simple yet sinister. If Chile can't get its hands on spare parts, its economy will crumble. And when that happens, the military will seize the opportunity to stage a coup. It's a risky gamble, but Nixon is willing to take that chance to protect American interests. But his quest to smash the Chilean president-elect underscores one thing. Allende is spot on in his quest for regaining the country's technological sovereignty. Without it, they are open to all kinds of threats. As Nixon moves to foil Allende, ITT's John McCone is telling Henry Kissinger that an outside force, well, possibly someone like Fidel Castro, is driving Allende's Marxist tech policies. But it's not at all like that. In fact, it's Allende's faithful red engineers, people like the Santiago boys, who are now in charge of Chile's tech policy. ITT has found its match in these radical utopian engineers. 
and some economists too, the ones demanding its nationalization. As the CIA and ITT close in on him, Allende turns to Fidel Castro for help and advice. He dispatches his daughter Beatrice on a secret mission, a mission that will solidify her reputation as Allende's own James Bond, a socialist one. Tanya Harmer. When she was in Cuba, the Cubans gave her a uh, radio to take back to Santiago, a, a, a very heavy uh, Zenith radio um, that she, she was able to carry back to Chile um, and from which she was able to decode messages from the Cubans. This operation is nothing short of thrilling. Essentially, what she had to do was to listen to Radio Havana Cuba at night, um, and she had the code, and she would then decipher the codes um, from her bedroom in her home, uh, in, in the house, in the Allende household. At least someone is preparing for the tech war that ITT, the White House, and the CIA want to unleash against Allende. In Washington, Richard Nixon is still seething with rage over Allende's victory. That son of a bitch, that son of a bitch, we are going to smash him, he declares to the visiting U.S. ambassador. Nixon is still hoping to block Allende's rise to power. He may have been elected, but he's not yet been officially confirmed. There lies an opportunity. With time running out, the CIA resorts to extreme measures, as revealed by an internal memo. The key is psych war within Chile. We cannot endeavor to ignite the world if Chile itself is a placid lake. The fuel for the fire must come from within Chile. Therefore, the station should employ every stratagem, every plot, however bizarre, to create this internal resistance. The agency is so creative in this mission that it soon loses control over its own network. This is how a shadowy right-wing group in its wider orbit comes to abduct the commander of Chile's armed forces. They want to blame it on the leftists of Mir, hoping that this will trigger a military coup. But when the commander is mortally wounded, the plan backfires, and spectacularly so. The country is thrown into crisis. And it actually plays in Allende's hands. Just a few days later, he finally becomes president. That's his fourth run. He's been at it for almost 20 years. His voters rejoice. A savvy politician, he immediately offers Mir, that radical political party, to head the health ministry. They decline, but the message is clear. The political landscape has shifted, and the Robin Hoods, not the ITT or the CIA, are in charge now. This is a very different Chile. Allende may have won this round, but a bruised Richard Nixon is already planning his next move. No impression should be permitted in Latin America that they can get away with this, that it's safe to go this way. All over the world, it's too much the fashion to kick us around. There must be times when we should and must react, not because we want to hurt them, but to show we can't be kicked around. Nixon knows what's at stake. If Allende's project succeeds, it would set a precedent for other nations. But if he fails, it could be the end of these hopes altogether. Nixon will now do his best to crush Allende, but he will do so quietly. The Chilean president, in the meantime, presses on with his radical economic reforms. The first companies are successfully integrated in the social property area. 
but there is a big hurdle. No one is stepping up to take charge of them. IND needs managers, badly. And in Santiago, the US ambassador is only making things worse. He's actually encouraging technicians and professionals to flee the country. As he states, the fewer the brains, the more difficult the management problem for Allende. It's a cunning plan, and he's put it all down in a memo to Washington. If the economic and administrative problems are sufficiently severe, popular unity could crumble. If they are unable to cope, the unity could dissolve, the revolution could turn into chaos, and the people's support for their government could melt away. Allende's ability to create alliances between the working and middle classes is the foundation of his success. Popular unity is more than just a slogan. Allende himself is a true synergy machine. A machine for finding what different groups and classes have in common and then exploiting it. And it is this ability to build synergies that his animus will try to destroy. Luckily, Allende has something up his sleeve a strong public institution to manage all of these nationalized firms. Joshua Franz Strink, a historian of Chile at the University of Texas, explains. Chile is one of the first countries anywhere in Latin America to establish a permanent uh, state development corporation. Uh, it becomes known as Corfo, the Corporación de Fomento. Corporation of Development uh, would be the rough English translation. This will be a central player in the events that unfold. Most of the nationalized firms will end up there, in Corfu. Predictably, the Santiago boys want to overhaul this powerful institution. They want to make their mark there, and through their political party, MAPU, they've managed to get one of their own inter-senior position there. That person is Fernando Flores, a 27-year-old management specialist. He's been appointed as Corfu's technical manager, a very high-ranking position. Pay attention to Fernando. Of all the Santiago boys, he's the one with the most incredible life story. I was uh, born in Talca in 1943. And I never left Talca uh, up to I went to, the, to study in, in the Catholic University. Talca is something of a provincial backwater. It's not exactly the capital of the world. But once in Santiago, Fernando builds an impressive career. So impressive that the student occupations of 1967 even turned him into a senior administrator at his alma mater. However, his gruff personality and his humble origins often clash with the university's refined and almost aristocratic culture. Gabriel Rodriguez, a friend and colleague of Fernando's in Mapu, explains. Some of his discomfort also had to do with the racism connected with social differences that existed in our university, but also in the country. His classmates know him as El Negro Flores, a nickname that is far from flattering. Fernando accepted that others call him El Negro, but he also wanted to show these guys that he was much more intelligent than the other guys and could have much more success and money and power than them. And Fernando is still quite defensive on this point today. I was not the only guy that, that had uh, my complexion there. But, uh, but it's true that, that in that year, the school was relatively small, and many of them coming from the private school from Santiago. To the Santiago boys, Fernando is a source of knowledge and inspiration, especially when it comes to cybernetics. 
A field that may seem obscure, but it actually proves of immense importance in the technocratic universe of Allende's Chile. All kind of people come to see me, to me. I was one of these guys that always asked, what I should do next? And so, as Fernando ventures into politics, the Santiago boys follow closely behind. Is Gabriel Rodriguez, for example, taking on a key role in transportation planning? After Allende's victory, some of the young engineers who were around Fernando at the Catholic University, like myself, started to work directly with the government. They went mainly to the technical areas of the government. They've been preparing for this day for years, but doubts linger. Will the CIAs and the ITTs of this world ever let them accomplish this bold and radical agenda of theirs? With so many enemies, Allende should watch his every move closely. The CIA and others like them will surely try to compromise him in some way. And given Allende's controversial love life, it wouldn't be all that difficult. But at least one person is still watching his back. Tanya Harmer explains. Beatrice, being very much security-minded, um, being trained by the Cubans um, as well in intelligence works, um, is one of those who is worried that the CIA or the op- opposition may have left um, listening devices in La Moneda. La Moneda, by the way, is Chile's presidential palace. Beatrice's father, still underestimating his enemies, find such concerns utterly ridiculous. Allende himself was very skeptical that any such listening devices, bugs, would be in La Moneda and was quite cross with this kind of concern. Surprisingly, all those bug-sweeping missions are not in vain. And some wiretapping devices are in fact found in La Moneda. Yes, Chile is in the middle of a tech war. And the other side won't stop at anything. But how can this radical leftist possibly respond? They aren't tech geniuses. What can they even do against tech giants like ITT or intelligence agencies like the CIA? Well, Allende does ask for external help, but you will never guess where. He actually asks ITT, yes, ITT, the same company that has been working with the CIA to destroy him, to help him find all these bugs. It's practically like asking the fox to guard the hen house. And as if by magic, an American expert does arrive in Chile shortly after. His mission? To train Allende's team in detecting bugs. But who is this enigmatic American? As it turns out, he was once responsible for all of FBI wiretapping in New York City. Later, he became Nixon's personal electronics advisor. And he even aided the president in wiretapping a journalist he didn't like. On top of that, he's also been a freelance consultant to ITT. Yeah, he's just the kind of guy you want close to Allende's telephones. Allende's innocence is a sharp contrast to the cunning of the mere leftists. Here's what the U.S. State Department reports from one of their allies, shedding light on the striking difference. Coordination was accomplished with a communication system consisting of private telephones with messengers standing by with reserve telephones in case the lines were being tapped. Mir feels that it demonstrated its potential for seriously disrupting Santiago by mobilization of the masses and infiltration of key public utilities such as telephone and electrical plants. So someone in Chile might in fact be ready for the brewing tech war. 
like ITT and the CIA, Meristas are the true masters of what I call dark tech. Dark tech is a broad term that spans various technologies related to surveillance, mobilization, control, the kind of tech that can make or break coups or revolutions. It's taken us a while to understand this, but the story of the Cold War is also a story of dark tech. Maybe it's mainly the story of dark tech. Take Cuba in 1958. Back then, Fidel Castro's insurgent forces ingeniously had a sympathetic engineer planted right inside his local office. That gave them a major edge over the army. Few have heard of this engineer. But such invisibility is precisely the point, making the job of historians impossibly hard. But Allende doesn't seem as clear-sighted on matters of dark tack as Castro. Apart from Mir and his daughter Beatrice, Chilean leftists mostly seem clueless about dark tack. It's a shortcoming they will eventually come to regret. And it's here that one should certainly learn from history. Well, it could be that Allende simply has no time for dark tack. He has so many other pressing obligations. His supporters do want change to come swiftly. But how deep and how fast should this peaceful revolution go? And how to make sure that the whole system doesn't come crashing down as they press for all this radical change? And then, the first big crisis of Allende's presidency arrives. And it does so from within his own leftist camp. When workers at a big textile factory demand an unplanned nationalization, Allende faces a very difficult dilemma. Should he let them run the factory as they see fit? Or should he send in the police to disband the protests? This factory occupation is a powder keg waiting to explode. As the government radicals threaten to resign over Allende's lack of support for the workers, the revolution hangs in the balance. Finally, Allende relents. The workers have won. But when other factories face similar occupations, including a small caramel plant, the situation becomes even more volatile. Mixing caramels, red wine, and empanadas, Allende's revolution has taken a very weird turn. As the number of companies under Corfu's belt grows, Fernando Flores confronts one of the most significant management challenges of his career. Thinking the whole thing, I, I see this is going to be a mess of communication and different organization and different political party. Fortunately, Fernando is up to the task. He draws inspiration from the theories of Stafford Beer, which he first encountered while working with Sigma, a UK consulting firm where Beer served as a leader. Although they never had the opportunity to meet in person, Fernando is deeply familiar with Beer's ideas. This book of Stafford Beer, The Cybernetic and Management, made a big difference to me because it makes sense many of the things I was doing. Offered me concepts, uh, distinctions, dreams. Thanks to Fernando's teaching and mentorship, the beer gospel has been disseminated far and wide, and the Santiago boys are well acquainted with his methods. When we arrived old Corfo, we were aware of Stafford's work, we were aware of his book. This is Raul Espejo, who comes to Corfo from the Catholic University. And he isn't the only person well-versed in the beer dogma. Gabriel Rodriguez suggests that it's quite a fan club. So in the last time years in the university, and obviously during the Allende government, Fernando was the person that was promoting 
stuff of beer ideas, looking for a different way of understanding. But just who is this guy? Stafford Beer is a man of mystery, a British big shot who is making waves in the world of business and government. From his travels around the world to his connections with the wealthy and the powerful, Beer is living a life that most of us can only dream of. He's even rubbing elbows with the likes of Lord Mountbatten, a distant cousin of the Queen, and the eventually disgraced press baron Robert Maxwell, whose daughter, by the way, Ghislaine, yes, that Ghislaine, is playing with Beer's kids. And yes, he has no idea that he's got this following in Chile. He's never even set foot in the country when Sigma, his consulting firm, worked there. But all of that changes in an instant. One fateful day, his world collides with that of Allende. I suddenly got a letter which very much changed my life. It was from the technical general manager of the State Planning Board of Chile. The Santiago boys have made their move. He uh, remarked in this letter uh, that he had studied all my works, he had collected a team of scientists together, and would I please come and take it over? Uh, I could hardly believe it. In Stafford, the Santiago boys have found a one-of-a-kind management series. Someone who can supply managers with superhuman powers. With Stafford's help, these managers can generate synergy in even the most chaotic situations. And now, empowered by computers and cybernetics, they could perform even more impressive miracles. This echoes Allende's conviction that a politician like himself is also superhuman. He too could unite workers, peasants, and professionals, all in order to achieve what they couldn't achieve on their own. Remember, the man is a synergy machine. But will this be enough to convince a rich British snob to gamble on a Latin American Marxist? A Marxist who is fighting the CIA and ITT? As Stafford Beer stands at a crossroads, he is weighing the potential risks and rewards of getting involved with I am this crowd. Despite having a reputation to uphold, his connection to the military, and a lavish lifestyle to maintain, he's drawn to the opportunity. But has Stafford really considered all the possible downsides? Does he really know enough about Allende and his enemies? I would give up any of my retainer contracts for the chance to work on this, Stafford writes to Fernando. And with that seemingly innocuous reply, Stafford seals his fate, setting off a chain of events that will change his life forever. Two months have come and gone, and Fernando Flores finds himself in London. He's meeting Stafford at the Athenaeum, one of the most exclusive clubs in the world. I've never been in a club like this. I was so naive. Now, this club has quite the history. The roster of its members is truly unmatchable. We are talking 50 Nobel Prize winners and some pretty impressive names, like Dickens and Darwin. So it's not exactly a hub for Latin American Marxists. Still, Stafford seems to be having a grand old time with his new friend. I believe she was delighted that a guy on my level of general story, that I had like 300 companies under my concern, great part of the Chilean economy in of the state, all of that, and also a young guy. It was intriguing for him. So what does Stafford, then 45, think of Fernando, 17 years his junior? We don't really know, but he later describes him as follows. He affects a revolutionary appearance, a deliberate political act, which puts many people off. 
He often looks like a bandit chief. His spoken English is very poor, but he reads English like lightning. I like him enormously. Finally, it's time for Fernando's pitch. And at the end of the conversation, I said, Mr. Beer, that was still I was not tougher for me. I would like that you help me to find one person, young guy, that your student, that want to Chile to work with us because we need some help. This is Taffer's last chance to turn down Fernando's request. But instead... I never imagined that he going to give me the answer that he gave me. I know one guy, he said to me. Who? Me. <laughs> a few weeks later, Stafford is packing for Santiago. This was to start me on a, on a journey which uh, made me travel 8,000 miles over and over and over again. Stafford's mission takes him to a nation in trouble. A nation where chaos, not order, rules the day. But with his computer and management skills, he might just be the guy that Allende needs. Next on the Santiago Boys, Allende's enemies establish a menacing intelligence network, while Nixon and ITT continue with their own plots. Stafford Beer meets Allende and agrees to help. But as the opposition to the regime grows violent, one could only wonder how far this planned tech utopia would go. How could it possibly survive the coming onslaught? All of this and more on the next episode of The Santiago Boys. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Santiago Boys is a co-production of Cora Media and Post-Utopia. Writing, research, development, and presentation, Evgeny Marozov. Music Mains theme, Luca Michele. Audio editing and post-production, Luca Michele and Guida Bertolotti. Music supervisor, Luca Michele. Post-production producer, Matteo Salsa. The people who've been helping me with organizing, recording, and processing hundreds of interviews, unfortunately too many to name here. But I'd like to extend special thanks to Chiara Di Leone, Ekaiz Cancela, Nicola Maximchuk, and Matteo Miavaldi all of whom helped me in more than one way. Full credits are also available on the podcast website, the-santiago-boys.com. <laughs>